Father, send your spirit that we might hear your word and might be pricked in our hearts and stirred in our minds to follow the way of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Welcome to the courtroom. You might have thought you were in church, but Micah has invited us to the courtroom this morning. The witness, the mountains, the hills, and even the foundations of the earth are gathered here. The defendant on trial is God's very own people, the people of Israel and Judah, and especially their leaders. The judge and the plaintiff are the Lord, the God who covenanted with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who led the people from slavery into the promised land, the God who faithfully walked with the people through their failures and unfaithfulness, through trial and tribulation, through blessing and challenge. This courtroom is the stage that Micah has set for us in chapter 6 as God charges the people of their wrongs and calls them to state their defense. The Lord begins the prosecution by accusing the people that by their actions they've shown that they've forgotten God's faithfulness to them. Their lives indicate that they've ignored or overlooked the way that God had saved them and rescued them from slavery and death time and again throughout their history. We can almost hear God's thundering voice command the defendants, rise, listen, answer me. But how should the people answer? What's the way to enter this judge's courtroom? What will demonstrate that the defendant's remorse and change of ways are true? Is it elaborate worship practices? Is it through grand offerings? Is it even an act of significant sacrifice, like offering your most treasured possession or gift? Micah doesn't suggest any of these things. Religious practices may be good, but they won't do in this courtroom. An acceptable entrance into this courtroom of relationship with the Lord comes by way of a life lived justly and with steadfast love and in a humble journey with God. God is more interested in how people live their daily lives than God is interested in religious practices. That's kind of hard for a pastor to say, I think. Perhaps the demanding tone of the entry into this courtroom was startling for some, but it's when the accusations become specific that the gravity of the situation really begins to set in. The charges are serious, and they demand that things be made right. A God who expects the people to live by God's good ways. That is to say, a God who expects justice. A God who is concerned for the oppressed and marginalized. A God who created an interconnected world where harm done impacts both the wrongdoer and the one who's been wronged. This God will not allow violence and abuse to go unaddressed. The Lord layers on accusation after accusation, 
of the people's embodied worship of the unholy trinity of mistrust and fear and greed. You used dishonest systems to rob the poor of the little they had. You lied and used evil tricks to build your wealth when your needy neighbors barely had anything to eat. Furthermore, you use violent power plays to bully those who stand in your way and block you from accruing more wealth. It's obscene and I won't tolerate it. Instead of using their hands to offer gifts to God or to serve their neighbors, God's people and especially the leaders developed hands skilled in wrongdoing and treachery. Or as Micah later says, both hands are skilled in doing evil. So the judgment comes. Micah delivers a message from God consistent with the message of God's prophets before and after him. God is long-suffering, patient, and kind, but God won't let people perpetuate injustice forever. God knows that the bondage of some ultimately means bondage for all. Breaking the backs of the least and the lowly ends up leaving everyone paralyzed. The judgment Micah speaks on God's behalf is one of frustration and futility. The, the judgment is one of desolation and ruin for the people. They will eat but not be satisfied. They will put away but not save. They will sow but not reap. God has rendered God's judgment. The gavel has slammed. It's bad news in the courtroom for the defendants. God's people stood as defendants in this courtroom that Micah depicts, accused and convicted of being skilled in evil. The troubling and yet poignant thing about Micah's courtroom for us modern readers is God's accusations are not simply limited to or particularly bound only by covenantal fidelity or infidelity as serious as those accusations would be and are throughout the, the scriptures. Instead, the accusations are specific to the use and abuse of others, especially those in need, for the sake of accumulating wealth and power. Sometimes, prophetic prosecution comes in courtroom scenes. And sometimes it comes in more subtle and playful ways that are nevertheless poignant. Universal Pictures 2012 film, The Lorax, which is a representation of Dr. Seuss's book, provides one such example. The movie tells a fictional story of how skilled our hands can become at doing evil. The movie shows how a young man named the Onceler sets out to change the world by making a thing called a thneed, the thing that everyone needs. To make a long story short, the young man finds that a special kind of tree is useful for his product. And in order to maximize his profits and, the pro and to produce the thneed more quickly, he realizes that he must cut down the trees. 
The Lorax, a creature who speaks on behalf of the trees and of all created things, warns against such irresponsible disregard for the trees. Though the Lorax prophetically warned of the dangers to come and the ruin that would happen if the trees weren't cared for, the young man plowed through the trees until they were all gone. With the trees gone, and greed having run its natural course, the Wunzler ends up on the outside of the community, left to be alone potentially forever. But it got worse for the people of Sneedville. The result of the lack of trees was the need for manufactured air. The story ends up offering a vision of how a society in its incessant need for more and more ends up creating an unsustainable world that becomes dependent on a corporation to provide the most basic needs of life. Of course, this corporation and its CEO only cared about maximizing profits and the practices that demonstrated an ever-growing greed that consumed the lives of the whole community. You know, the remarkable thing about this children's story in film is that with catchy tunes and Dr. Seuss's patented end rhyme, it touches so profoundly on the ways our skills and good intentions become corrupted and used for evil to the detriment of all created things. In a world where greed is glamorized, and violence towards people and creation is valorized, we're all trained to use our skills to accrue wealth and amass power by any means necessary. And oftentimes, any means includes evil, wicked, and unjust means. While there are those who in our society sound alarms against such practices, it's not the dominant sound of our world. The priests and kings of our global market economy develop laws, systems, and practices that at best are unfavorable for the poor and powerless, and at worst, violently imprison them in a painful present with little future hope. Perhaps the intentions of those who created these practices, laws, and systems that rob the poor of their futures was not always evil but the fruit of them surely has been. I'll name just a few examples that particularly prey on the poor. The unjust criminal system, also known as the criminal justice system. The for-profit prison industry. Payday lending schemes and tax laws that favor the obscenely rich and the multinational national corporate interests they protect. Oh, there are more, and you could name them if I gave you the chance. These things and others like them privilege the creation and protection of wealth for the rich over care for the most vulnerable among us. And because of the history of race and racism, particularly in the United States, this means that the most vulnerable who bear the burden of this injustice are typically people of color. The staggering and challenging thing about these unjust systems, such as they are, is the way we all participate in them. 
no one gets off the hook. We all develop hands skilled in wrongdoing and treachery, even if we don't mean to. Or to modify what Micah says a little bit, both of our hands are skilled in doing evil. So Micah continues with lamentation. He cries out, expressing the extent to which the problem has developed. In his lament, we hear both the lament of God and of God's people. The judge has proclaimed that the sentence that will come, and the people express their remorse all in the same words. But unlike so many people who simply grieve their wrongdoing because of the punishment they will receive, the lament in Micah 7 is a little different. The lament in Micah 7 is over the moral state of the people. Woe is me, Micah says, in words that could either be the people's words or God's words. The message paraphrase of the Bible says it so well here, so I'm going to read that to you. I'm overwhelmed with sorrow, sunk in a swamp of despair. I'm like someone who goes to the garden to pick cabbages and carrots and corn and returns empty-handed, finds nothing for soup or sandwich or salad. There's not a decent person in sight. Right-living humans are extinct. They're all out for one another's blood, animals preying on each other. They've all become experts in evil. Corrupt leaders demand bribes. The powerful rich make sure they get what they want. The best and the brightest, they're thistles. The top of the line is crabgrass. But no longer. It's exam time. Look at them slinking away in disgrace. Don't trust your neighbor. Don't confide in your friend. Watch your words even with your spouse. Neighborhoods and families are falling to pieces. The closer they are, sons, daughters, in-laws, the worse they can be. Your own family is the enemy. Shocking words. It seems to be as bad as it possibly can be for God's people. Yet, as one commentator puts it, when the last vestige of human confidence has been taken away, God's people find that God is still there. It's not the worst it could be. Though all the people are skilled at evil, God is skilled at making things right. In spite of God's judgment against the evil of the people, God does not finally leave them alone. Like a parent who loves her children enough not to allow them to continue in their destructive ways. Like a parent who disciplines, reproves, punishes, and corrects his children, but refuses to leave them to suffer alone like a parent who won't finally allow her children to be known by what they've done rather than by the familial relationships they're in. God remains near, and God offers redemption. Expressing the voice of God's people, Micah 
proclaims a turn to God in hope. But for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. It's not a desire to escape punishment that drives them to the Lord. Micah says, I must bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he takes my side and executes judgment for me. Unlike those who are only upset for being caught doing wrong, Micah gives voice to a true remorse and a true repentance that is more concerned about the fact that God will not leave them alone than about the hardship their wrongdoing has brought upon themselves. You see, Micah understood that God is better at doing good than God's people are at doing evil. God is better at doing good than any people are at doing evil. And ultimately, to be corrected or to even be punished is better than to be left without God. Micah says that God, the plaintiff and judge in the courtroom, joins the defendants and takes their side. God does not take their side in order for them to remain in the death-dealing and life-draining practices they've lived. Rather, God takes their side and brings them to the light so that they might be transformed into something new. God's hands are skilled at bringing redemption and making all things new. For Micah, there's a mixture of judgment and hope. And ultimately, hope has the final word because God's steadfast love and mercy have the final word. Or as writer Anne Lamott puts it, grace bats last. The Apostle Paul said a similar thing when he wrote, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in this. While still we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we look around at the brokenness and the wrongdoing and the evil that's all around, we can't help but lament with Micah. We lament the brokenness with which we are complicit and in which we participate. We lament the judgment that already is implicit in consequences that are the natural result of failing to live by God's best ways. We acknowledge and we lament the skill of our hands in doing evil. A singer-songwriter, John Foreman, puts it in his song, Micah 7, and about Micah 7, and both of our hands are equally skilled at doing evil equally skilled at bribing the judges, equally skilled at perverting justice, both of our hands. Our hands are skilled at evil. But thanks be to God, God's hands, the very hands that shaped the cosmos and gathered the dust of the earth in order to 
form human life. God's hands, the very hands that in time and space touched the unclean and the sinful. God's hands, the very hands that received the cruel nails of unjust capital punishment because that's what we do to those who threaten our ways of misery and might and money. God's hands are skilled at doing good. Both of God's hands are equally skilled at showing us mercy, equally skilled at loving the loveless, equally skilled at ministering justice. Both of God's hands while the prophetic word of judgment rings out against our ways that move counter to God's ways. And while we must be attentive and responsive to this warning even today, God's skilled and nail-scarred hands remind us that in the end, goodness is stronger than evil. And in the world that so frequently seems hell-bent on perpetuating the evils that destroy the most vulnerable and ultimately the evils that destroy itself, it's good for us today to remember that God's hands offer the goodness of God's own life to us. Even at this table, God's body, God's blood, God's skilled hands given for you. Amen.